Greetings and welcome back to the Clarity Podcast. So excited to be here today with a friend of the podcast, Dick Foth, for another session of Back Channel with Foth. And then we're going to jump into our interview with um, Kevin Harris on radical mentoring. Dick, welcome back to the podcast. Aaron, my man. Thank you. Always fun to be here. It is great, great to be with you again here today, Dick. I have um, some new questions for us today. Um, first one that came in was, well, these are not the first one that came in. This is the order that I put them in. Um, first question, what are characteristics of a true prayer warrior and not just those that say they pray? You know, prayer warrior is an interesting combination of words. You know, yeah. it, it sounds like a fight. Yeah. And, and the fact is that apparently it is a fight along the way. <laughs> And, um, you know, I, I can't I can't tell you how many times somebody has said something to me and, and I've said as reflex, I'll pray for you. Hmm. And I have to confess, sometimes that has been a comma hmm. in an evangelical sentence. Yeah. I could put it that way, that it's a that it's a it's maybe a desired response. My heart was in it at the moment, but right. so often it. it you know how it is. For sure. We forget. And, and and the older you are, like I am, the quicker you forget. You know, this is not a good thing. So <laughs> I, th- I think for me, the characteristic of a true a person who takes prayer seriously, who sees, uh, just sees it as sort of the foundation of everything, is that in praying, they do this. When, when it, in D.C., we were there for 15 years. Uh, almost always at the end of a conversation with whomever it was, whether it was some young person from Southeast D.C., which is the least served area, or whether it's somebody in in a major role, we would say we have people around the country, around the world, who believe that praying for those in significant roles uh, or just praying uh, works and it's significant. And um, what can we pray for? And it didn't make any difference whether the person was a believer in Jesus or not. Uh, I never had once in 15 years anybody say no, Hmm. that they didn't want to have a prayer or have be prayed for. Maybe not in the moment, but just, you know. And something that came to me was that when someone says, I'll pray for you, they are not saying, "I, I will set your value. What they what they are doing is acknowledging my value. Hmm. Hmm. So when I say to you, Aaron, going to pray for you today, what you're saying is, I think you're so valuable that when I speak to the creator of the universe this afternoon, could I bring your name up? Wow. There's something about that that is profound. And I think that's a characteristic of what we call prayer warriors. They, they go around in this serving role, acknowledging people's value. Yeah. Wow. Good word. Good word. Always fascinating insights, Dick. The second question, um, different different listener, but second question, what characteristics have you seen in those who truly know how to commune with God and have prayers answered? Let me just speak to that prayers answered moment. You know, I think our prayers are always answered, right? right. Uh, but, but maybe not the way, not the way <laughs> I like. I take, I take the question to mean... Right. Or the framing of the question that that we see positive things. Sure. Uh, one way or another in this. I think uh, the characteristics would, first of all, be consistency. Hmm. That, that these are people who are like farmers. Yeah. They're always plowing. They're always planting. They're always nurturing. 
But for them, you know, I have to confess again, that, yeah, I, this is not good. I keep confessing on this thing that's going around the world. That <laughs> that sometimes, a lot of times in my life, maybe not a lot, but sometimes in my life, prayer has not always been my first stop. Because hmm. prayer implies trust. You know, it's it's a little bit, well, that didn't work and that didn't work. Well, sure. wow, we're down to trust. It's that <laughs> sort of approach, right? But for people that I consider prayers, that if I had a need, I'd call them because they take it seriously. Yeah. I think prayer is their first stop, talking hmm. to God, speaking to him about this or about us or about the circumstance is the first stop. So consistency, it's their first stop. And it and it's their second, third, fourth, and fifth stops. That is mm-hmm. that they will circle back yeah. in a few days or a couple of weeks and check in. Say, so how's that going? Yeah. How's that thing coming along? Wow. Well, how are you? Yeah. How's your heart? How's your brain? Yeah. Are you still feeling sorry for yourself? You know, wh- whatever. Yeah. Right, for sure. <laughs> no, it's good. Good. So when we when we offer to pray for people, we're uh, recognizing their value. That's what I heard you say, and um, acknowledging, and, yep. acknowledging yep. their value. And then the other thing is um, we the consistency in our prayer, um, planting and planting and planting. Um, good word, Dick. I really appreciate it. Going to go ahead and jump into our interview with Kevin Harris on radical mentoring. Well, there's no time better than now to get started. So here we go. Greetings and welcome back to the Clarity Podcast. So excited to be here again today with our friend Kevin Harris. Kevin, welcome back to the podcast. Aaron, it is great to be back from across the globe. It is. It is. I think the last time we talked was in 2020 when the world was going sideways with COVID and all that. And um, Kevin, for those who didn't listen to that that podcast yet, uh, would you just take a little bit of time and introduce yourself, um, maybe a little bit about you personally, and then we'll jump into to Radical Mentoring. Yeah, I'd love to. So uh, I've been married 23 years this September. I've got two boys, uh, age 16 and 13. Um, We're based here in Atlanta, Georgia, which is sort of home base for radical mentoring. Um, You know, kind of connecting through to the ministry. uh, I was mentored by our late founder, Reggie Campbell, in 2002. Uh, which is kind of hard to believe. That was 21 years ago. I was a young, newly married, kidless uh, guy who was ready to take the bulls by the horn and take on the world and uh, was able to, or God was able to intersect my life with Reggie's and a group of other men. And I just got to sort of sit and um, watch Reggie give his life away to us in many ways. You know, he was there just to sort of look us in the eyes and go, you know, I'm, I'm entering the second half and I'd love to keep guys like you from making some of the same mistakes I made. And so a year of time with Reggie was, uh, was a life changing experience for me and my faith and my marriage. Um, we stayed really, really close friends. Um, and he remained a mentor and gosh, a little over eight, this is my eighth year on our staff. So we probably about nine or so years ago, he approached me and said, I've got this crazy idea. He had watched me uh, have some success in the world's eyes, but also watched me sacrifice a lot of uh, time and energy and care for my family, watched me navigate depression, watched me go through some really tough seasons. And he said, I, you know, God's laid this on my heart. Would you be willing to come join me and sort of help take this little fledgling ministry that he started at around his dining room table and and help him get it into the hands of leaders 
uh, nonprofit leaders, church leaders, parachurch ministry, and just help see how what we can do with it. And so today we work with almost uh, 500 and a little over 550 churches and organizations around the world. We're in 42 states and 14 countries. Uh, we've got a book, tra- Mentor Like Jesus, translated into Spanish and translated into Arabic. Uh, we've seen somewhere around 22,000 people have gone through our mentoring model. But what's amazing uh, is those individual people represent stories. And from those stories, as you know, it's families, it's uh, it's redemption, it's just understanding grace and all those beautiful things you've seen, Aaron, and the groups you've led. Um, yeah. It's really not about the number. It's really about the lives that are being transformed by God through mentors in this mentoring model. So that's sort of my story. Yeah. What did I miss? No, it's good. Great. And uh, I, I get emails from from you all every week that I find valuable, I find challenging, um, challenge me. I shared with you before we hit record. You know, I I read um, the devotional that Reggie wrote, um, and uh, it challenges me. I've read through it. I think this is the third or maybe the third or fourth time I've read through it. And each and every time I find something new to highlight and um, it, it continues to speak. And uh, it's been a valuable, a valuable part of my life. And so just want to just want to say thank you. Just want to say thank love you for it. that. Yeah. Awesome. Say the last time we talked, um, you know, one of the things that I've seen that changed changed is uh, now it's for both radical mentoring is now for both men and women. Can you share a little bit about this and and that that change and uh, yeah, yeah and that so, in that direction? Yeah, so for years there was a women's mentoring model. It was called Titus Two that Reggie and a lady in Atlanta sort of put together. Um, but we would get asked, well, do you have anything for women? And we could refer them there. Um, but the reality was it was, you know, it just, it wasn't in our sweet spot. Reggie and I would always say, well, the reason we don't have a women's model is because we're not women. <laughs> um, and then, uh, which, but what would happen is, you know, the, the wives would get the, these, tr- their transformed husbands coming back to coming back home over the year, nine months, you know, through this mentoring process, they would see this dramatic change. And I I had got reached out randomly by somebody who said, I've been leading groups for women out of Susan in Virginia, can't remember where in Virginia she was, but she said, I basically just have rewritten all of Reggie. My first nut. Maybe we ought to bring it a little more close to home. Um, then we had a girl who was on our staff, just left our staff uh, earlier this at the beginning of the year, and she just had a huge passion for it. So then she started to kind of work a little bit harder on the content, and um, that's how Women's Mentoring was born. It's called Known Collective. Okay. Um, Radical Mentoring wasn't as wasn't a wasn't a womenly enough name. So the idea of known collective is that, you know, women like men have got the same desire to want to be seen, to want to be known. They want to see worth in their stories. Um, And so really the response has been remarkable because we've got these churches who have done radical mentoring on the men's side. Oftentimes women want a similar experience. And so now we're able to say, Hey, here's a, here's a kind of a, a model that's written exactly like ours is modified for women um, and we're able to uh, manage both those um, 
both those new mentoring models here through our organization. So it's been a lot of fun and a huge need. That's been, I think, really the interesting part. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's exciting. And um, I was excited to see that. And uh, it's just a, a great, a great change. I think it, it helps it to be holistic. And um, yeah. as I said, it's, yeah. a, it's a, yeah, it's a great, great, great thing. I wanted to ask you um, just about some trends maybe you're seeing in both men and women when it becomes to be involved in mentoring groups. You know, we've heard a lot about change in the church after, you know, through COVID, after COVID, Um as, have you seen that when it comes to mentoring? Has there been has it been impacted? Do you see people being more interested, not as interested? Yeah, just some trends because this is your this is your sweet spot. Yeah. So what what was interesting is, and I can share it kind of from from my Americanized context a little bit, Aaron. You know, during pandemic, shortly after the pandemic, there was still there was this really deep um, longing for community because we got so used to not having as much activity. Um, so that was driving a lot of great conversations. We've seen big adoption of mentoring in churches and in communities and other places. Now that we're you know, a couple years post the, the height of the pandemic, um, we're seeing a little bit of a drift back to the regular um, you know, the, the regular flow of activity that we used to have. Yeah. I uh, look even at my own life and my own calendar. And I just see that, you know, at the end of the day, we're, we're creatures of habit and we've gotten sucked right back into some of the speed and pace of our lives. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't, I think there's still just that deep desire for all of us to be in environments of grace, environments where we can be known Part of the, you know, the magic that, that Reggie landed on was let's meet once a month for three hours. So there's a big attractiveness to, I think that it's a much deeper commitment than a quote unquote small group or Sunday school class. But the, the meeting rhythm of once a month for three hours, for some reason, just is more digestible for a lot of people. And so there's some flexibility in that. I, I don't think... Um, I, I just don't think this idea of mentoring and or discipleship, depending on which what what your language is, I just don't see it going away. I just think it's that my my hope is that the local church will rebuild its leadership through some of these next generation leaders who just have a heart to pour back in yeah. and help rebuild the church intergenerationally through our mentoring model. And I think it's just a really attractive way to do that. Yeah, that's good. That's good. And so you you said it there about mentoring and discipleship. So I think they're synonymous. Would you consider them synonymous? Um, mentoring and discipleship? I do. I do think they're really synonymous. There's something about churchy words that I think intimidate people. Yeah. And so I, I think the idea of mentoring is um, a little more culturally acceptable. I think discipleship brings with it, at least for the you know, for the non, the non, you know, lifetime church person or church trained person, discipleship feels a little bit weightier. Discipleship sometimes feels like you have to, there's some pre-requirement maybe to be able to be a disciple maker. Hmm. Um, I had I mean, I a conversation with a church leader last week, a pastor on staff, and he just said, for whatever reason, mentoring is this, this magnet that people are just drawn to want to have mentoring conversations and the church can fight it 
And we can say, no, it's discipleship. But at the end of the day, you want to create environments that people want to attach themselves to. And I think both for mentors and mentees, that idea of mentoring is just a, a more natural conversation. Yeah, but great. I think at the end of the day, the result is the same. You're developing leaders, you're developing disciple makers, you're modeling discipleship, you're sort of modeling this intergenerational um, teaching and training. And so it, to me, it doesn't matter what you call it, but yeah. um, I think it gets, we're, we're, we're pushing people to the same, the same destination, which is just the, the ability to duplicate and replicate a ministry and multiply it. That's good. That's good. You know, I think that's what I've seen. Um, we shared a little bit before we hit record, at least the people that I serve with and work with in Africa, the mentoring or discipleship, what, however, you, as you said, we want to label it. This, the idea of re- recognizing that people are lonely and um, people yeah. want to, they want community. And um, ours, you know, it looks different in different places, but just the idea of of having people that you can consider friends that can walk through life with has just been really valuable for us um, as we've walked through, uh, yeah, through COVID and then after that. And you're right, it has, yeah. life has gotten busy. We we had time, you know, when you're in confinement, you had all the time you wanted on WhatsApp or Zoom to sit down and have conversations. Um, at the same time, when, you know, life gets back up to speed, uh, the importance of those friendships ha- has held true. And um, yeah, yeah, it's been, it's been super valuable. You talked about the the next generation. And um, one of the things that I've read and, and I've heard, heard said was, you know, that men don't necessarily begin to think about character until they're in their thirties. Can you just yeah. unpack your thoughts on that and your experience with that? Yeah. I mean, I think, I don't know if I'd say they don't think about character. Um, okay. I think they think, I think they're confused maybe about character. I don't know. Yeah, that's, that, there's a, that's a big enough difference, but I think, yeah. you know, we're all sort of stuck in this phase of identity and it's, and I think it's, there's confusion about character and there's confusion about identity in the thirties because you're in the flow of early career busyness, um, you know, throw young kids in there, throw, a new marriage in there, you know, marriages are now happening later in life. Um, predominantly you see it because of people are cohabitating more. Um, but I just think there's confusion about the anchor of their own. I, I think about, um, think about the movie, catch me if you can, if you've seen that one, it's about this yeah. guy named Frank Abagnale. And so he sort of is this, you know, lifelong con man who, by starting at the age of about 19, he just duped his way into all these situations from a doctor to an attorney to a pilot on an airplane. And what you see is as that movie progresses, you get this sense that Abagnale gets more tired of sort of keeping up the pace of those identities, getting him ultimately to a place where he almost wants to get caught that it's so tired of, of running around and being different things to different people that the idea of being caught is almost freeing. And I think what's happening early on for men in their, in their younger parts of their career and probably women, I don't know that as this is applies directly, but it's, you know, what role am I supposed to play and where am I supposed to play it? And am I, you know, am I being a certain as a salesperson, I mean, I know from my own experience, you know, I was as a as an on the road traveling salesperson, I was always caught in these, you know, am I supposed to be the sales guy? Am I supposed to be the the Christian sales guy? Am I just supposed to be the Christian 
you know, just you just get really tired. And I think there's this anchoring that happened, at least for me, it happened as I sort of drifted into I'm 47 today as I started to approach sort of whether it's halftime or, you know, whatever the the later the later years it became that desire to go, you know, I'm so tired of being different people in different places. Um, I just want to anchor myself in Christ. I want to hang on to the idea that um, God's, you know, first John says God's lavished his love on us and we're children of God and I'm a son of God. It's what I am. And that allows me to sort of strip away some of the character issues I'm navigating or some of the identity issues and, and just sort of rest in that confidence to me, I think that's the challenge that's happening with that younger generation a little bit is it's just trying to figure out who you are and what role you're supposed to play versus thinking, you know what? My identity is firm in Christ. Yeah. I'm firmly identified as a child of God. And if I sort of put that first, then these other areas will will fall underneath that. And I can step confidently and boldly into whatever situation, job, marriage, parenting situation, whatever it might be. Long answer to your question. No, it's excellent, excellent, and good, good word, good, good, challenging word there. Um, the other thing, you know, when we started our our, our different groups, um, it, it kind of got this misnomer um, that was put out. Hey, this is these are groups that are for guys that are struggling with porn, so they became like the porn groups, you know, and and, and it was obviously not the uh, the the. The label we wanted put put it on the group, um, and it's you know the groups are so much more than that. But the reality of it is, sexual integrity is is a large part of yeah. of who we are as human beings, right? And um, so, how does and I think I learned a lot from radical mentoring on just the the ability to talk and encourage men and women um, both to t- openly talk about sexual integrity. Can you just uh, share a little bit about that? Yeah, I think I I wish I could remember who said it, but somebody at one point said when a man knocks on the door of a brothel, he's searching for God. Hmm. And it's profound. I I know it's written in Michael Cusick's book, Surfing for God, but he's quoting somebody else on that. Um, And I think you just, especially... You know, folks that have grown up with a phone in their pocket and access to everything. You know, I even think about my own initial, you know, first time I saw a Playboy, it was, you know, I had to, you had to find it. Yeah. It was, you know, it was in, it was in one of my neighbor's, you know, garages by the tool bench underneath, you know, six things of this and that. And I think with a generation that has, is seeking identity, but also carrying a, you know, a, a device in their pocket that gives them access to anything they want at any moment in time. I think, I think that that sexual integrity, that idea of, um, you know, finding whether it's finding relief in uh, pornography, whether it's, um, you know, guilt, shame, whatever it might be. I think it's just something that has got to be spoken to, but it's easier to speak about it when you start to have those identity conversations first. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we are not, as you said, we're not a um, ministry that speaks directly into sex addiction, certainly are a ministry that helps men who, and women who have a sex addiction issue better understand holistically who they are. Yeah. Um, you know, the statistics are frightening when you see 
you know, on the, me and my boys again at 16 and 13 average age exposure to pornography, I think now is around 11. Um, I think the other, the counter to that is because you now have so many men who are finding some level of satisfaction, relief, identity, whatever it is in sort of pornography. And it's becoming obviously, you know, not that we're going to talk all about pornography, but that there's a more, much more hardcore nature to it today. Yeah. That the statistics read that younger girls are now having, they're now looking at pornography at a much, um, earlier age and at about the same level as guys are. And the research kind of says they're, they're trying to find their own sexual identity because they're trying to appeal to these boys who are staring at pornography so frequently that they don't understand how to have a relationship with a female. And so it's starting to cascade its way down. And if you play that forward, it's just got huge cultural ramifications. And so I think it's just creating that, that place of grace where you can have hard conversations. You know, it's really important that mentors lead the way in that, whether or not they've had an issue or not, um, leading the way to say like, guys, this is just something we need to talk about. Yeah. We've got a, we've got a topic around sexual integrity, but the reality is I've had a lot of mentors tell me that sexual integrity, that conversation shows up in identity. It shows up in grace. It shows up in marriage. It shows up in all these different other topics because it just is so pervasive right now across our society. I just want to pause for 30 seconds in the middle of this episode to share some exciting news about the book I published, A Caring Life, How Each of Us Can Change the Trajectory of an Uncaring World. It's available now on Amazon and audiobook, Kindle, and print form. And the book helps us recognize that our world is moving in a direction of an uncaring life and helps us reorient towards a caring life where those that are in our life feel valued, they feel known, they know that they belong, and they matter. The book, as I said, is, is a valuable resource and I believe will help change the trajectory of an uncaring world. It's available now on Amazon. What I'm trying to say is I found is when a leader is open and honest and transparent, it kind of sets the ceiling for the group. If the leader says, you know, this is not an area for me, um, my life's awesome, then it kind of sets the ceiling there for other people yeah. not to open up and be transparent. So how how does how can people grow in that level of uncomfortability of being transparent when honestly I grew up in the church and you just didn't talk about it? You know what I mean? You, you know what I mean? Yeah. So you're you you did not have a comfortable level because it was you just didn't talk about it. And it is a change. I mean, it is a change in and been challenged um through radical mentor, mentoring is to be become comfortable, not, not, um, you know, not oversharing, but being honest and transparent with others so that people could see the real Aaron Santamire. Does that make, is that a fair question? Makes total sense, Aaron makes total sense. And I think what I see is, I think you're exactly right. It is not, it's not the specific experiences of the mentor, but it's really the mentor's willingness to um, set the pace for transparency when they share their stories. And I think it is, there's reasons that some people don't make great mentors because some people have been so generationally told that you don't share your scars that they really can't get, they can't break that hurdle. And and so they aren't great mentors because if you're only giving the, you know, as I often say, if you're giving the Sunday school version of your story, you're going to get the Sunday school version of somebody else's That's stories. Good. And oftentimes that is just, it's, you're not going to get real and raw. 
And I also say it's not, you're not sharing the Saturday night embellished version of your story, but you have to be willing to say, this is where I was and this is where God showed up. And this is how I worked my way out of, you know, the mud and the not worked. It's a bad, bad word. Sorry. Um, this is how God helped me through the mud and the muck of that. This is how I've been redeemed. This is where I still struggle. This is where God still shows up. This is where I've been redeemed. And it's just that intense, the, the ability to really just say whatever it is with open and honest transparency, the group will follow that, whether it's sex addiction or alcoholism, the group's mm -hmm. going to be willing to go at the same level of pace and speed that mentor does. Yeah, it's good. It's good. Intentional relationships. I think that's the other thing when I, I think about radical mentoring, it's the intentionality of the relationships that are, that are involved in your for me, intentional relationships don't come naturally. It's not like something naturally that I yeah. fall into. Does that make sense? And so it's something I have to put effort no, into. No, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. <laughs> so can you just talk about the importance of intentionality in relationships and um, yeah, in this, your experience with that? Yeah. So I'll give you a real life story. This happened last night. We were sitting around the table. Um, my wife and I attended the funeral of a grandparent friend of one of my 16 year olds baseball teammates. So baseball friends, grandmother died. We attended that funeral hmm. and we were talking to Thomas and I said, look, buddy, I would just encourage you to, you know, ask Michael how he's doing, ask him, you know, you're telling him you're sorry to, you were sorry to hear about the loss of his grandmother. And Thomas looked at, looked at me and said, I cannot do that. I'm too scared. Hmm. I said, well, then text them. Like, just shoot them a text. Just yeah. same thing. I said, you know, at least reach and just let them know. And he said, I just can't do it. I'm just, I'm too scared. I mean, what if he were, you know, what if he reacts this way? Or what if he reacts this way? Then, then what do I do? And it was just that great reminder that I'll speak to the men's side of it. Maybe then I'll hit a little bit on the women's side of it. Men just, we don't we don't want to reach into those messy situations. And so there's a generation of men ahead of us and behind us that struggle with how do you, how do you just reach into empathy or show some compassion around a situation? Because we have this fear that we're not equipped or we can't handle the emotion that may come back or whatever it might be. And, and I think of these guys that are in these environments where, somebody sort of leans in a little bit with some authenticity and some, some rawness in their story. And just the, the, it becomes this emotional thing, I think, because men just don't create that space. They don't, they don't like the uncomfortability of, of, you know, whether it's tragedy and trying to understand it. And I just saw it at my 16 year last night and I hear about it with, you know, 65 and 70 year old guys who kind of go through these groups. It's, we just don't like to reach. Therefore, you know, I'm not going to call Aaron and ask Aaron, how's he doing? Cause, cause he wouldn't want to hear from me. And then you're over there going, well, I'm not calling Kevin. Cause I mean, I hadn't talked to Kevin in three months and I know I heard this thing that happened. So we're both isolated and alone. We both want the same thing, but our pride is getting in the way and neither one of us is going to reach out. And I just watched it start at 16 years, 16 years old with my son just last night at dinner. Wow. I think what we're seeing on the women's side is 
I think this, you know, women are, we would always say, well, gosh, there's not a really, you know, there's not an issue with women starting women's ministry and there's plenty of opportunities. And we found it's not hard to coach women on how to implement a mentoring model, but women oftentimes relationally still aren't going that deep because there's all this undercurrent of competition and, um, and men are the same way competition and Instagram and social media profiles and everything looks good. And so there's still men or women, there's still that struggle of, you know, opening up, showing a crack that's, you know, showing an area where we're concerned. And I think what happens is, you know, C.S. Lewis says friendship begins when um, two people can look at each other and go, oh, you too. That mm. idea that we, we share that same, um, whatever that struggle might be, I just think the intentionality of that is it's just hard to start once you start. And you know, as you know, once you do it once, yeah. you don't want to go back to those shallow, superficial sure. relationships. Yeah. But it's just hard to necessarily jump into it. Yeah. You know, I think the other thing, the intentional relationships, I, I had somebody come up to me, you know, unintentionally. Uh, well, they came up to me, we were having a conversation and and the conversation basically went, your life's perfect. I mean, from their perspective, my life was perfect. I had a perfect marriage, perfect kids. Everything was, and it was, it was that, it was what I was evidently that I was portraying to them and it just wasn't the truth. You know what I mean? And, um, not, yeah. it, and it made me realize I'm, I'm responsible for the image that I'm portraying and um, I'm 100%. portraying that somehow that I have it all together, that, you know, I'm always make the right decisions that I don't have any struggles, you know, that my life's perfect. And I think that's that's this intentional relationships has really challenged me to say, you know what, I want I want need to be intentional. It's, it's not going to happen naturally, but the willingness to say, you know, that when you see behind the, who Aaron really is, you know, I don't always make the right decisions. I, I don't always. It, it's life's not perfect, but you know that I don't know. I just felt the Holy Spirit convicting me of you're you're putting out a false narrative because you have a bunch of superficial relationships and you don't have intentional relationships and you're not having deep relationships. And because of that, the, you know, you're portraying this a reality that's just not true. And, um, you know, I think I wanted to blame it on the, the person and said, well, that's their, you know, that's their opinion. But the reality of it is when I examined my own life, I realized that that was the image I was, you know, that I was putting out there. So anyway, I know this is not a counseling session, but it, it was, that was nice. but it's, but it was the, it was the truth. And, um, yeah. and these, and you're these, not going to, you know, you're not going to be this way with everybody, Sure, but especially for guys to have, you know, whether it's you think about who are the guys are going to carry your casket at your funeral yeah. or who's your 3am friend. You know, Matt yeah. Chandler says, if you're, if if you're known, if I know 99% of you, Aaron, you're still unknown to me. Hmm. Who are the guys that are good, that you can reveal that last 3% to and know that you're not going to be judged. You're not going to be condemned for those areas that you struggle. Yeah. And, I, you know, I just think whether or not you, you know, you crack it a little bit more so that people, you know, don't think that you've got this, you know, <laughs> perfect life. Right maybe you find opportunities to do that. But I also would say, don't beat yourself up, you know, just mark that as one of those, Hey, I just, I need to probably push it a little bit more in some areas with some people. But if you're known by a few, especially for men, then then that's so important to have those safe places. Yeah. 
So this is a question that I'm going to uh, throw you a curveball, not a curveball, but so you're a father of two boys and, um, yeah, and yeah. so you're, you're having re- intentional relationships. Do you think that's having an impact on your sons as far as giving them the opportunity modeling for them that for intentional relationships and what encouragement maybe would you have for fathers out there that are listening in, um, because if they can model these intentional relationships, I guess my hypothesis would be, you know, it could set the example for their for their kids. So do you see that of part of what your these intentional relationships that you have modeling for your sons and, and the benefit of it? I hope so. Okay. Um, you know, I have I in, in moments of stress or frustration, my default position is sit, think, process, ponder, isolate. Hmm. Um, so I also think they're, they're hopefully seeing me invest intentionally with some guys, you know, I've led yeah. five of these mentoring groups. I'm taking a break right now, just cause I know I've only got, I've got limited time with my, with these boys at the house, Sure, but that nothing brought me more joy than to see a group of my, these younger mentees show up and go through the baseball in the front yard with Thomas and Bo, or, yeah. you know, just ask them about the Georgia football game, whatever, you know, whatever the thing was, they, they could see me in those moments. Yeah. Um, you know, see, see how those intentional relationships work. Yeah. I hope they also learn from me when I'm, when I apologize for things I do. Hmm. Um, you know, even last night, even in that conversation with Thomas about reaching out to somebody, I was able to just even say how hard it is for me sometimes to do that to, to want to step into a relationship, to want to reach out to somebody. Um, or if they've seen me isolate alone, then, you know, on, a, on, a, on occasion, um, <laughs> my, I, I may get, you know, a little bit more stress, which may reveal itself in a little bit of anger and a sharp word. And I hope the things they're learning from me is yes, community, but also that you don't have to be perfect. Here's what forgiveness looks like. Here's how you ask for forgiveness. Um, I hope they're seeing some of those things too, but, um, you know, I watch them on the phones, you know, you just watch, you, you watch them build relationships through technology. And as much as you try to encourage a change or encourage them to do things differently. That is sort of the default world that they're living in, which is why you see these anxiety and depression rates and young people now going, you know, up and up into the right at rates that we haven't seen before. I think part of that is it's easy to sort of hide behind whatever device or whatever picture or whatever um, party, whatever it is, you really don't have to let anybody know about you. Um, one of the things that thrilled me more than anything is I had the, the uh, a, a friend of mine was leading Thomas and a couple of his uh, friends in a little morning Bible study last year. And I snuck downstairs while they were meeting and sat and got to hear these six to 15 year olds at the time pray for each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you, you know, those are the glimpses of, you know, I, I probably, if I'd asked the three of them to pray for each other, they would, my Thomas would have looked at me like I had seven heads, but to hear somebody <laughs> else say, we're just going to go around and pray for each other and learn yeah. and watch them learn how to pray. And that's yeah. super encouraging. So whether it comes from you or whether it comes from um, some other kind of trusted leader, yeah. it is encouraging to see, but it's, 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 it's hard. Oh, for sure. Parenting so- is, 
parenting is not uh for the for the soft-hearted that's for sure for sure so we went on a camping trip with my my son and um uh, one of his teachers at school jack and so we were around the campfire and he said yeah tomorrow josiah josiah's gonna share the devotional i said ah have you talked <laughs> i mean i'm thinking i don't know how this i said he's never done that before he said well i'll just tell him he's gonna share the devotional tomorrow morning yeah. And I said, I, you know, I don't know how that's going to go. So so he went to him, talked to him. Well, we get there the next morning. Josiah gets out. You know, he does. I'm like, is this my son? You know, I mean, he yeah. it was phenomenal. I mean, he had it was it was a, a, a deep thought. He'd put thought into it. It was engaging. And like you said, it was just if probably if I just said, hey, you're, you're sharing a devotional tomorrow. There might have been a little bit of tension. But um, another mentor, yeah. another man he respected, um, challenged him to do it. And he did it and he did it with excellence. And so just that, that idea of having, having people around you speaking the same thing, because as you said, uh, parenting is, uh, yeah, it, it is, it is one of those challenging things for sure. Kevin, any wisdom we've, we've talked about mentoring discipleship, any wisdom, somebody's listening to this and they say, you know what, I'd like to, I'd like to engage. I would like to be a part of a, of a group. I would like to lead a group, any wisdom you have from them, um, from your experience. Yeah, just, you know, God's not in a hurry. Um, and if, if you if you sense God's putting a desire in your heart to mentor a group of young guys or young women, a generation behind you, mm-hmm. um, just slowly pray about what that could look like. You know, Jesus prayed for the men that God was going to give to him. And God began to put the disciples in, in his pathway, and, and he began to invite them to journey with him. Um, I think there's real good wisdom in that. You know, it's, we want to we, we say, I'm, all right, I'm, I'm ready to mentor, and I'm going to jump out there and put it on all my social media feeds and ask for people that want to be mentored. Maybe, maybe it works, but I think more often than not, stepping slowly into that for church leaders and pastors um, same thing, pray about who you want your mentors to be. Who are the, who are the men and women who you want to pour into the next generation of leaders and disciple makers at your church, and then just wait and just see how, how God begins to pull those people and, uh, names to mind or pull them together. Um, if you want to be mentored, um, I think it's the same, there's the same wisdom in that of, just pray and ponder and, you know, think about who it is that the type of person you want to mentor you and just ask that God would put somebody in front of you that might fit that. And then you start thinking about who are the other people that I would like to be in this kind of group environment with me. Um, I think we're so results driven and we want things to happen fast. And so, you know, we try to microwave everything and, uh, I think it's okay to take this process slow and just be, be, be intentional about seeking out who it is that should be leading the group or who it is that should be in the group with you. I think that's my greatest wisdom. You know, reading Reggie's book, Mentor Like Jesus, is yeah. um, a great way to just kind of get, get some framework around kind of the group mentoring model. I think a lot of people think mentoring is these one-on-one relationships. So you can certainly re- read that book. I'd highly recommend it just to give you some framework. Um, but I think just slowing down and, and really thinking about wh- what you want that model to look like in your own life is really important. 
Good word. Good word. God was holy. It was very spiritual of me, wasn't it? So yeah, pray. yeah, it was excellent. Excellent. So Kevin, it's been a joy to, to hang out with you again. Um, I'll put the links um, to awesome. radical mentoring in the, in the show notes. And um, just like to ask you if you would pray for us. Yeah, I'd love to father. Um, you don't make mistakes. Uh, so it was a joy to connect with Aaron. I think in February of 2020, and uh, here we are again, Lord, just um, getting to talk about something that's near and dear to both of us, this idea of um, taking what you've given us, holding it with an open hand and pouring it out for the generation behind us, Lord. I just pray for uh, men and women who hear this, um, maybe your spirit nudges them one step closer to wanting to lead a group or nudges them a step closer to be, to participate in a group father, just go before us in our thoughts, in our words and our deeds, Lord. Um, we just pray for um, nations all around the world who get to hear about your message, Lord, and leaders who get to bring your message to them, Lord. And um, just, again, just the gift of technology to put, as two like-hearted, like-hearted uh, knuckleheads together on this podcast, just with a chance to uh, speak about, again, what it looks like to lead the next generation, Lord. And I just thank you deeply, deeply, deeply for this ministry. And I just ask that you help us steward it well, and that you, um, again, just lead us as we, as we try to bring others uh, closer to you. I thank you that the ground is even at the foot of the cross. There's no performance, there's no status, um, there's, that our identity is firmly in you. And uh, maybe we just remember that as we go forward today and for the days to come. So, yeah, my friend.